live from New York. I'm Allison Kosick. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The U.S. gains almost 1.4 million jobs in August as the unemployment rate falls below 10 percent. Tech sell-off, the Nasdaq heading for another down day after billions wiped off big tech in just a few hours. And getting the data, Russia releases information on its vaccine trials. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. So glad you can join us. I'm filling in for my colleague, Julia Chatterley. And ooh, it's been a busy Friday so far on the global markets. Investors are bracing for another rough day for tech after Thursday's steep sell-off, the worst day on Wall Street since June. We've also got newly released U.S. employment numbers. The government reporting that 1.4 million non-farm jobs were created in the U.S., Last month, that came in pretty much as expected. A lot of those jobs created, however, were part-time census workers, so government jobs there. Also important, only about half of the jobs lost in March and April have been recovered so far. And no fiscal help for the unemployed is on the horizon from Washington. Meantime, the U.S. unemployment rate has dipped below the 10 percent mark for the first time since March. It fell to 8.4 percent. Wall Street futures looks like they've strengthened since the release of the report. The Dow and the S&P are now in the green, but we are keeping an eye on tech. You see the red arrows there. It is still set to open weaker. Tech was the big loser in the previous session, falling almost 5 percent, outpacing losses for the Dow and the S&P. Leading tech names like Apple, Tesla and Microsoft were hit particularly hard. It's important to note here that the Nasdaq erased a mere one week of gains with yesterday's drop. And get this, the Nasdaq is still up 27 percent. Despite those losses, it's up 27 percent year to date. European stocks are trading mostly higher right now, with German stocks under a bit of pressure. Asia-Pacific stocks fell across the board, with Australian stocks, the biggest losers, down some 3 percent. All right, let's get right to our drivers now and more on today's jobs numbers. And I want to bring in Christine, Christine Roman. She joins us live now. So I got to look at this report. Uh, you know, it, it sounds good when you hear the headline, but we are still down 11 and a half million jobs since the pandemic hit. Yeah, I think it's really important to take the whole last six months as one big snapshot, right? Um, <clears throat> this has been a really terrible time for the American workforce over the past six months. And we've added 1.4 million jobs back of those millions and millions that were lost. But the pace of that uh, recovery is slowing a little bit. So you saw some brisk job gains in the beginning of the summer, and now that's slowing a little bit. Also, you're right to point out that some of this hiring was temporary census jobs, 238,000 temporary census jobs. And when you look within some of these sectors, you can see there are also temporary help agencies. They had a lot of jobs gained there, so not necessarily permanent jobs. Uh, there were jobs in manufacturing, though, 29,000 jobs in manufacturing, important to point out. So you're seeing, look, that big March and April, 22.2 million jobs lost. Now we've added 10.5 million back in the Labor Department. Quick to point out here in its note that because of the way people were maybe misclassifying themselves when they're contacted for the survey here, you could have an unemployment rate that's actually uh, seven-tenths of a percentage point higher, so somewhere in the 9% range for the unemployment rate. The lowest we've seen since March, Allison, right? But still, in normal times, it would be considered absolutely uh, devastating here. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it makes you think about how this recovery is going now and how it's going to go as we get into the yeah. winter time when we have the flu to deal with and the pandemic is still raging. How much do you think Congress is going to go ahead and take a look at this report and say, you know what, we better get going on this relief bill? They need to get going on the relief bill. So this August snapshot here, these are the, fir- the first month of the pandemic that people didn't get the $600 a week in extra jobless benefits. They'd spent their stimulus check money. The PPP has run out. So there is an urgency here behind Congress to get fiscal relief to people to make sure that we don't have a, a very fragile recovery turn south here into the fall, especially, as you point out, heading into what is going to be a brutal calendar in terms of the health, the health crisis as we head into the flu season. So I think it's really important that they do something. Uh, And I think that they're probably hearing from their constituents about food pantries that are being overstressed. Lines around the block of people who've never gone to a food pantry before who are looking, who are now food insecure. You've got millions of people who are are still out of work. You've got all these concerns about evictions and rent coming due. So we have still a a serious job crisis here. I mean, you think about that hole, 22.2 million jobs is the hole we dug. We're just just about halfway climbed out of that hole. That's got a lot of work to do still. And the data still comes in a little dirty, doesn't it? Because it continues to be adjusted and it's hard to really gauge from one month to another where the improvement is. It's, you know, an economist this morning said the American labor market is like a whirlpool. And sometimes it can look kind of smooth on top or have, have an appearance on the top. And underneath, it can be very turbulent. And I think that's what we're seeing here right now. Just... The sheer volume of the job loss and the crash in the economy was so severe that everything now on the way back looks distorted. You're going to hear talk about record job gains over the past four months. That's true, but it was record job losses the two months uh, before that. So how this economy recovers is going to be, I think you're right, the data is going to be dirty, and we're going to have to really try to take each little piece and try to figure out what the direction is. The direction is still the right direction, but at a much slower pace, and that's what I'm worried about now that fiscal stimulus is over. Yeah. All right. CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, thanks for breaking all that down for us. You're welcome. U.S. stock futures mostly flat at the moment after Thursday's big sell-off. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped almost 5%. Apple lost $180 billion in the market value yesterday. Paula Monica joins us live for more, uh, with more. You know, it felt like this sell-off came out of nowhere. Did investors just wake up yesterday and decide, hmm, stocks are overvalued, perhaps? Yeah, I think that, at Allison, you had many investors finally look ahead and realize, okay, we have a jobs report coming on Friday. Who knows what exactly that's going to look like? We've got the long weekend looming, a vacation, Labor Day on Monday. So let's take some money off the table. It's, you know, it's the usual kind of cliche, you know, sell into these big rallies, take profits. But when you look at how well the NASDAQ and the S&P 500, for that matter, which is very tech heavy, they both hit all time highs as recently as when was it? Oh, yeah, Wednesday. So it's not as if this is a market in crisis. We've just had a day and a half of selling. It makes sense for uh, investors to say, you know what, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, these stocks have done really well. Let's sell a little bit. I mean, Tesla is a completely different phenomenon because that that stock's just gone bonkers. But, you know, you look at Apple, Microsoft, the big tech giants, they've done really strongly this year. And it makes sense that investors would want to pull some money off the table, take some profits. So 
Talk to me about what this sell-off tells you, because this was not a broad sell-off across all sectors. It really was being led the way down by tech. What is that? What does that show? Yeah, I think what might be encouraging, and we'll have to see what happens after the market opens today, Allison, at last check, you did have the Dow up and the S&P 500 flat to slightly higher, even though the NASDAQ is pointing to lo- uh, you know another day of losses. What might be happening here is that investors are doing that classic sector rotation. The winners can't win forever. Big tech has to pull back at some point, and you need new market leaders to emerge. So interestingly, banks, they are rallying pre-market. You're seeing the cruise line stocks, which have been obviously decimated because of what's happened to their business, they're rebounding as well. So it's partly a you know continued low interest rate play with the banks, a maybe return to normalcy for the global economy. And that's what's happening, I think, with the cruise lines. It's, I don't think that investors are panicking all of a sudden saying, oh, wow, I don't think people are going to buy as many iPhones or subscribe to Netflix as much anymore. It's just that Apple and Netflix got bid up way too high and there are better bargains in this market. We shall see if it's going to be a one day event. Uh, the market opens in about 20 minutes. Paula Monica, great seeing you. The key model used by the White House Coronavirus Task Force now projects that more than 410,000 Americans will die from coronavirus by January 1st. That's more than double the current U.S. death toll. Scientists partially blame the declining vigilance of Americans. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now live. Uh, with She's from CNN Health. Elizabeth, good to see you. Uh, to walk me through how this number came to be and when when we hear that Americans are being less vigilant, what does that exactly mean? Allison, this number is so disheartening. It shows the incredible climb that they think deaths will take over the next couple of months. They attribute it to several factors, but one of them is they say Americans aren't wearing masks the way that they did at one point in the outbreak. Masks save lives. There is no other way to say it. Let's take a look at these numbers. So current deaths from in the pandemic to date in the U.S., nearly 187,000. Projected by January, if we keep doing all the things that we're doing, 410,000. So that is a more than doubling of the number of deaths in just a matter of months. Projected by January, if we don't take interventions, in other words, if we do what some have been advocating, which is, hey, just let it all go, let people get infected, let's sort of see what happens, 620,000 thousand deaths. So these numbers really spell it out. I know there is incredible pandemic fatigue. We've been at this since March, but this uh, this advance of the pandemic is exponential. It is not linear. It is not just going to get worse. It is going to get much worse in the months to come, according to this projection. Allison? Those really are stunning numbers to see. How much of a dent would it make in those numbers if everybody just wore a mask? It would definitely make a difference. If people were really vigilant about masks, that would make a difference. And what we saw is if people aren't, if, you know, there is some, there are some out there advocating for just getting herd immunity naturally. Let's just let everybody get infected. Whoever dies, dies. But then we will have a, an immune population that may sound sort of reasonable in a way, but you kill hundreds of thousands of people on the way to doing that. So these numbers really show how that works. Yeah, they really do. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, great talking with you. Wish was with better news. Thanks for being with us. Mm -hmm. Thanks.
The first peer-reviewed results for Russia's COVID-19 vaccine trials, they've been released. Findings from the scientific community show the vaccine is effective and revealed no serious side effects. One doctor from John, Johns Hopkins University called the studies, quote, encouraging but small. CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is in Moscow and joins us live. So to walk us through uh, what you learned um, from uh, this data. Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, first of all, it's the first time that the Russians have made public any of the clinical data that they've got um, when testing their uh, vaccine, this uh, so-called Sputnik V uh, vaccine that they, they, they approved for use inside Russia last month. And so, you know, any sort of insight into whether the vaccine is safe or effective, which is what the big concerns are, has been welcomed by the sort of broader scientific community. It's important as well that it's been sort of published in The Lancet, which is one of the world's most prestigious um, medical journals. Uh, and so obviously they've, um, it's been peer-reviewed peer as it's appeared in, in that publication as well. Um, and there's some very positive things that The Lancet has to say about the Russian vaccine. As you mentioned, it says that it shows people who, people who have the vaccine show no significant serious adverse effects. There are no big uh, problematic side effects. There are a few uh, cases of headaches and, and mild fever, but nothing very serious at all. And so that's really important. It is pretty safe. They also say that it generates an, an antibody response in 100% of the participants. Now, there are only 76 people uh, that took part. Nevertheless, you know, that's, that's a good result. Result, it could have been, you know, much worse. Now, the Russians have seized on this uh, as saying it's, you know, a, a, a real major positive uh, that vindicates them in their early approval of this vaccine. Uh, Kirill Dmitriev, who's the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, the sovereign wealth fund here in Russia, that's been essentially funding vaccine research, saying the trial results confirm the high safety and efficacy of the Russian vaccine. He also says that it uh, is a powerful response to skeptics who unreasonably criticised mm. the Russian, Russian vaccine, he said. But I mean, there are, you know, some caveats in that Lancet article, uh, Lancet article uh, namely that the studies, while encouraging, are very small. And Lancet says the only large scale sort of phase three style, you know, trials involving tens of thousands of people can really decide uh, whether the vaccine is effective when it comes to stopping illness with COVID-19, Alison. Interesting that it was published in The Lancet, but still lots of skepticism surrounding this. Matthew Chance, live for us in Moscow. Thanks. These are the stories making headlines around the world. Beirut is hoping for a miracle after signs of life were detected in a collapsed building one month after an explosion devastated the Lebanese capital. Special equipment has picked up a heartbeat and rescuers say they're now less than half a meter away from a possible survivor. Our Sam Kiley is following all of these developments from Abu Dhabi. Wow, Sam, this is really amazing. Yeah, an extraordinary series of events that were set in trail by a sniffer dog who arrived from Chile on Sunday and on Wednesday evening happened to be picking over this patch of rubble that many of us have walked past in the aftermath of that explosion 28 days uh, earlier and picked up a scent which he signalled was a human scent or possible human scent of a survivor. The following morning, Thursday morning, the Tolos uh, Chilean uh, rescue team with their specialist equipment and scanners were able to pick up what they suspected were signs of breathing and a heartbeat. Now that has been going on 
Uh, the rescue efforts were going on last night, but they've got paused to the anger of local uh, Beirutis who are highly suspicious of any action taken uh, by the authorities since it is their successive governments whom they blame for this explosion in the first place that flattened, let's not forget, the homes of 300,000 people or at least rendered them homeless, killing 200 people, Alison. Uh, and so in this context, they uh, are now saying that they're about half a metre away from what they suspect may be a living being, uh, but they are sending out rather mixed signals because these are highly sensitive pieces of equipment that can be disrupted, of course, by the sounds of other people's breathings and movement and so on in a highly uh, fragile environment. But if this does result in a breakthrough, it'll be nothing short of miraculous in a city that is desperate for signs of hope after not only this catastrophic blast, but more nearly, nearly a year now of increasingly violent protests against excessive governments. The government uh, resigned, is now a caretaker government. As after that explosion, there's a new prime minister been nominated for many people uh, on the streets. In particular, this represents nothing more than a reshuffling of very corrupted cards uh, in the new dispensation or in the old dispensation that has ruled Lebanon since the civil war for many decades now. So a deeply depressed city hit very badly indeed by this enormous explosion now offered a limited glimmer of hope and of course there'll be a bitter letdown uh, if heaven forbid a dead body emerges having perished in the last few hours of what is at the moment still a very complex rescue attempt. Sam we know we, you will be keeping track of this and we'll be coming to you if anything changes here. Sam Carley thanks so much. Coming up on First Move, making sense of the data, we get more information on Russia's coronavirus vaccine, but does it actually provide any answers on how effective it is? Plus, counting on China, why Hollywood is hoping that Chinese moviegoers could save the summer blockbuster. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and investors are bracing for more pain in Techland today. U.S. tech stocks tumbled 5% Thursday and are set to extend those losses in early trading today. Remember, tech was sitting at a record, at a record high just two days ago. Thursday's NASDAQ route was painful to watch, but we've been warned for some time now that big cap tech was overvalued. Even after yesterday's losses, Tesla is still up almost 400% this year. Amazon and Apple are up more than 60%. Microsoft is up a mere 37%. These four big NASDAQ names are all lower in pre-market trading today, but way off their worst levels. Before the bell today, the U.S. reported that 1.4 million non-farm jobs were created in the U.S. last month. It's pretty much came in, coming in as expected, the unemployment rate fell by a greater than expected amount to 8.4 percent. Today's payroll gains are solid, but it is still the weakest jobs number in the past four months. Joining me now is Mark Zandi. He is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to see you, Mark. Thanks, Allison. So the headline sounds great. Unemployment rate dropping, more than a million jobs being added last month. What is your reaction? 
Well, uh, the good news, uh, Allison, is we're recovering. Uh, we're making our way back from the worst of the pandemic, uh, but it's a slow recovery and it's slowing and we've got a long way to go. Just to give you a couple more numbers, the economy lost uh, 22 million jobs in March and April. We've got about 11 million of those back. So we're halfway back uh, based on jobs. So, yeah, progress, but uh, we, we've got a long way to go here. You had talked recently about the real tsunami and unemployment is coming. Why do you say that and how bad could it get? Well, you know, most of the job growth so far, recovery has been in industries that have gotten directly hit by the pandemic. Uh, Restaurants and retail, transportation, um, leisure hospitality. Uh, the other parts of the economy, the other industries, uh, job growth uh, has been very lackluster, not so much. And I think a lot of businesses uh, in those industries remain very, very cautious and nervous, and uh, they're not going to make big moves until we're on the other side of this pandemic. Uh, and so I, I do think those industries are at significant risk. And the thing I really worry about is if Congress and the administration, Trump administration, can't get it together in the next few weeks and put together another fiscal rescue package, because that's going to be really key to helping all of the unemployed and underemployed and keep the economy moving forward. If we don't get that support, then uh, I think the economy is going to weaken and we're going to see more job loss. So and and let's focus a minute on on what Congress can do here. What what would you want to see in a relief bill to help prop up, you know, the, the labor market, prop up the economy? Well, I think uh, key, uh, most importantly, we, we need to provide more support to all of those unemployed workers. Uh, I mean, 8.4 percent is certainly better than, you know, the close to 20 percent unemployment rate we had back in April. But 8.4 percent by any other standard is cataclysmic. That's a lot of unemployed people. And that doesn't include people who've <clears throat> lost hours or people who've, uh, who have maintained their jobs and hours but have seen their pay cut. So those folks are under a lot of stress, financial stress, and they need support help if they don't get it. You know, they have no choice but to stop paying bills. They're not going to pay their rent. Uh, You know, we're going to have all kinds of problems. So that's number one. And I do think we also need to provide help to state and local governments. They've been holding on, hoping that the federal government will come through with some support. If that doesn't come through, then they'll have no choice but to begin to cut payrolls again and cut programs. And, of course, a lot of those programs uh, go to those uh, folks that are under a lot of stress. So uh, those are two key things. And, you know, uh, if I had uh, another day to work on this, I'd uh, add some more money for small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program. So there's a lot of things we need to do here, and hopefully uh, uh, lawmakers get it done pretty fast. Very quickly, Mark, want to hear what your opinion is about this, that unemployment disincentivizes people to go back to work. Do you agree with that? No, uh, there's no evidence of that. I mean, actually, we've gotten a number of really good academic studies uh, based on actual data because, you know, you see these distinctions between states and it gives you a lot of data points to take a a real close look at this. And there is no evidence of significant disincentive fix. There may be anecdotes. I'm sure there are, but it doesn't add up to anything of macroeconomic consequence. Well, we will certainly be watching Congress to see uh, what, if anything, comes out of Congress, uh, especially in the wake of seeing um, the jobs recovery kind of start stalling out here. Mark Zandi, great to talk with you, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. And you're watching First Move. The Market Open is next.
And there you see it, the opening bell on this Friday. Um, and as expected, um, we're getting a mixed open for U.S. stocks on this Friday. The Dow and the S&P look like they're bouncing back from their sizable losses yesterday. But the Nasdaq is falling further from record highs after Thursday's 5% drop. We're going to bring you those numbers um, once they hit the tape. Investors seem to be encouraged by today's U.S. employment numbers, which show 1.4 million non-farm jobs created in the U.S. last month, with the unemployment rate falling below 10 percent for the first time since March. The big question for investors now is how serious the tech pullback can get. Tech has underperformed the blue chips over the past month, and some believe that rotation out of big cap tech and into value is long overdue. One other event to watch out for, the upcoming S&P 500 rebalancing that happens later this month. So this could give the S&P Global the opportunity to announce Tesla's inclusion in the index. For more on where tech goes from here, I'm joined by Dan Ives. He's the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Great to see you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So did you hold your breath when you were watching this sell-off? How much of a surprise did it come for you? But uh, at the same time, you're calling it a speed bump at this point. Look, I think it was a healthy pullback. I mean, our view is that tech stocks, FANG names, still go another 20 25% higher. It's not going to be a straight line. I think if you look at the core fundamentals, to me in tech, that continues to be a green light to own these names. I could tell you yesterday, institutionally, two to one investors are calling me looking at names to own and do work on rather than hit the sell button. So I still think we're in the sixth, seventh inning of this re-rating in tech, despite many yelling fire in a crowd theater. How concerned are you that the sell-off was led by tech, though? Look, I mean, that's actually been the parabolic move we've seen, especially large cap tech fang names. I think if you look at momentum names, even like Tesla, you know, but to me right here, in terms of everything we're seeing, you know, the fundamental stories, you know, work from home and this COVID backdrop has accelerated a lot of these tech names from a growth perspective, one to two years. You could call it a bit of a catch up that we're seeing in tech stocks. But to me, steadfastly remain bullish in tech. That continues to really be our call since March. You're going to have these speed bumps. You'll get second wave fears, headline numbers, U.S., China. Those are the opportunities to look at the secular growth names you want to own. I view yesterday's Apple pullback as a golden opportunity to own that into a 5G super cycle. So you don't think it's time to start selling Apple knowing that, you know, it's, it's split, it fell 8%. Is it time to take, uh, take some profit off of Apple? Look, it's a great question. And, and my you know, advice to investors is you, you look at this over the next two to three years, not over the next 24 hours. And, and of course, investors are going to you continue to sort of take profits on the way up, but longer term, I mean, split adjusted. I believe Apple a year from now, 150 base case, 175 bull case, which would have been six and seven hundred dollar pre-split. So, so I just look. I think you take a step back. Secular growth. There's an insatiable appetite, and so much of those names are intact. And even though some could say a rotation to value. I believe short-lived, and I think going to fall, tech bang names in particular continue to lead this market higher. Tesla got hit hard, falling 9%. You put a price target, I think a couple weeks ago, on, on uh, Tesla for $1,900 a share. Do you still stand by that? 
yen are bull case 3,500 because, and if you look at that split adjusted, that's about 380 and 700 respectfully. Look in the EV market right now, I mean, three to 4% penetration. Look what happened in China, you know, in terms of the, almost a Teflon like demand, 150,000 units potentially first year out. Investors, you know, over the long term, to try to play that EV theme, Tesla continues to be front and center. And I, I, same thing, I view this as more of a speed bump, a healthy pullback rather than the start of a, a structural decline for Tesla in terms of what we're seeing in demand. And this continues to be, and you're seeing other EV players, you know, we're talking about a trillion dollar market in the next decade. But well, one last question here for the broader market, though. You know, where are the fundamentals at play? Um, you know, when you talk about valuations as opposed to this irrational exuberance that's persisted in the market, specifically tech. Well, I mean, some will point to, let's say, valuations, whether it's S&P 500, even some of these tech names on NASDAQ. But growth rates are 2x what they were because of the COVID backdrop. And because of the next 12 to 18 months in terms of a work from home environment, the one thing I point out is most investors that I talk to, they look at the other side of the dark valley. What do normalized numbers look like for 2021? And to me, I think numbers still go higher and the re-rating continues to be there intact, you know, despite many of the skeptics, that continues to be our thesis here. Okay, Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities, great getting your perspective today. Thanks for joining Thank us. Despite yesterday's sharp fall in the tech sector, shares of CrowdStrike are still up about 150% so far this year. The cybersecurity company's second quarter revenue beat expectations, helped by demand for cloud-based security solutions. Joining us now is CEO of CrowdStrike, George Kurtz. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. So we are watching CrowdStrike benefiting from the stay-at-home workplace as as we saw in your revenue up in the latest quarter. Company shares, though, they're down 3% since your latest earnings, but up 187% for the year. What do you think happened there for investors? Well, I think you have to look at the broader market, and there's a broader market sell-off. When you look at our execution, I think it was flawless. Uh, We had one of the best quarters in the company history. We had record uh, net new annual recurring revenue. And uh, it had 84% revenue growth, so on some really big numbers. So, you know, it's a testament to the durability of the model that we built at CrowdStrike. And it's really a function of the fact that um, security is a must-have in today's environment. And we talk about security here. Uh, How has CrowdStrike benefited from the need for more dynamic security measures um, in terms of hackers? I understand there have been been many huge attempts um, for breaches just this year. Yeah, this year, uh, the amount of attempted breaches that we've seen is up 154% year over year. Uh, It's been a very active year. In particular, uh, we've seen nation state activities, you might guess, but also e-crime. We've seen a tremendous uptick in uh, the e-crime actors and what they're focused on and, and really how much money they're able to make in this current environment. So, the threat landscape continues to get worse. Uh, it makes it more challenging for companies that have all their employees at home working remotely, uh, not necessarily behind the corporate firewall. And uh, that's where uh, technology and a platform like CrowdStrike can come in and help protect those uh, very critical endpoints and workers that are at home. You announced a partnership with Zoom um, 
and uh, three months after it was reported that Zoom was actually in advanced talks with, with Google Cloud for the use of a Google security service that alerts users to the dangers of clicking on links associated with malicious websites. Do you know if Zoom is still going through with that? I, that would be a question for, for Eric at Zoom, but uh, what I did announce in the last earnings call is that Zoom is a customer, and they chose our technology because of its uh, maturity and our ability to protect critical cloud workloads. So we were definitely excited about that customer win. Okay, CrowdStrike gained a lot of notoriety when President Trump mentioned your company in a, in a call with Ukraine's president. And we later learned your company did work for uh, the Democratic National Committee in 2016 and also did work for the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, related to a suspected breach. Is your company still doing work with both of them? Well, the thing about security is it's bipartisan. We do work with uh, both sides of the aisle and today's uh, environment and with the elections coming up, it's absolutely critical that cybersecurity is a, a foundational element. And uh, we work with federal, state, local uh, uh, organizations, both internationally and, and certainly in the U.S. And, you know, we're excited to, uh, to protect uh, both sides of the aisle. All right, George Kurtz, great to have you on today. Thanks for being with Thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you. The vaccine Russia pushed through early trials gets its first report card. Why scientists say they have more questions. We'll speak to one after the break. Russia's coronavirus vaccine scoring well in its first peer-reviewed studies. The respected Lancet Medical Journal giving promising marks for both immunology and safety. But the scientific community says it still needs to know more. Peter Hotez is professor and dean of tropical medicine at Baylor University's College of Medicine. And Dr. Hotez joins us live now from Houston via Skype. Great to see you. Great to see you. So as we know, there's been a lot of skepticism over the vaccine. Russia says it's produced in a matter of weeks, something that takes months or even years. And even before phase three trials were finished, after hearing about the data uh, about this vaccine this morning, how convinced are you? Yeah, Allison, you're right. A number of us, including myself, were very critical of the Russians because there was no transparency. There was no published data to look at. They claimed they had registered the vaccine. And, and the reason that's a big concern is we've been pointing out that the scientific hurdles around making a COVID-19 vaccine is not that, are really not that high. The hard part is the quality control, quality assurance, and the and all of the testing showing that the vaccines actually work and are safe and, and transparency of results, that's the hard part. And it looked as though that was the part the Russians are skipping over. So the fact that they're publishing their phase one slash phase two clinical trial data is an important first step. And it's, it's a step that I, that I welcome um, and, and with some uh, potentially interesting results. Uh, there was a peer review that uh, that call, uh, in the Lancet that called this uh, encouraging but small data, um, citing that um, you know that immune response couldn't be demonstrated in older groups. The efficacy of the vaccine hasn't yet been shown in a clinical setting. Um, studies are too small. Where does Russia go from here to prove that it does have? A, a valid vaccine here? What does it have to do to, to prove to scientists like yourself? Well, like any other vaccine, it has to go through larger, what we call phase three or pivotal trials. And my understanding is that's what the Russians plan. You know, when I look at this paper coming out of the Lancet, 
I see some advantages of the Russian vaccine and some disadvantages. So one of the advantages is the fact that they, uh, unlike some of the others uh, who haven't reported on it, the Russians are able to freeze dry the vaccine, what we call lyophilization. You might say, well, why is that important? Well, one of the reasons uh, we were able to eradicate smallpox was the Russians figured out how to freeze dry the smallpox vaccine. And that allows you to carry it into remote areas, rural areas where the temperatures are high without a cold chain, meaning refrigeration. So that potentially uh, is an important advantage for accessibility. The dis some of the disadvantages, uh, first of all, the immune responses were okay. They were not screaming high in terms of the level of virus neutralizing antibody, which some feel is a predictor of efficacy, roughly in line with some of the other uh, adenovirus vaccines like the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, not maybe not as high as, as, as we'd like. The other disadvantage is it's a two-component vaccine, meaning that there's the, the, the first, it's actually two different vaccines that mm -hmm. have to be given uh, in succession. You give one and then the other, and the logistics of that are a bit more complicated, especially in resource-poor uh, environments. So it's, it's certainly a viable player, and, and one we'll have to look at with interest in, in phase three trials. And all I can say is I just hope Russians continue along those lines of transparency, because the way they started with this lot of you know boasting, calling it Sputnik V, which was ridiculous, and and not having any published data, and saying that they had a vaccine without showing any clinical trial data, that was totally unacceptable. It looks like they're kind of, you know, trying to take steps mm -hmm. in, in the right direction and to be more in line with the mainstream scientific community. So you have you have to give them some points for that, and and hope that this continues. Right. Let me ask you, just switching gears to the, to the uh, you know, to the U.S. in an attempt to make a vaccine. The U.S. government has pretty much told states to prepare for a coronavirus vaccine to be ready to be distributed by November 1st. But how concerned are you that the FDA, uh, you know, still has to approve this before knowing, you know, whether it works and is safe? What are your concerns about this political pressure for a vaccine and public trust once one is available? Yeah, what we're seeing, you know, in my opinion, is, is quite a bit of chaos. I mean, you had that letter sent out by the CDC director saying, get ready, the vaccine is coming uh, maybe by November 1st, you know, two days before the election, which has the appearance of a political stunt. And then uh, Francis Collins, uh, the NIH director, walked it back in an interview saying, no, no, we're not going to have the, the phase three data uh, until the end of the year. So you're seeing... Uh, uh, quite a bit of confusion. And that's not good for the American public because we have such an aggressive anti-vaccine movement. What you really need is consistent public health messaging coming out of uh, the White House uh, and the agency. So I think they're starting to regroup and, and, and try to fix those things. You know, one of the flaws in Operation Warp Speed, which is the name of the U.S. vaccine program, is there never really was a communication strategy. It was left to the companies, the pharma companies, to provide that. And that, that was a, a mistake, I think. So I think trying to find a voice in the U.S. government that's going to be out there on a weekly basis, providing consistent messaging, answering questions from the American public is going to be absolutely important because we're already seeing up to half of Americans are now saying they'll refuse COVID-19 vaccines even if made available because the federal government's been tone deaf to this very aggressive anti-vaccine lobby that we have in the U.S. And now it's globalizing. They had held demonstrations in Berlin, Germany last weekend. So that's really ominous. So we're going to have to fix this as a country. Oh, yeah. Trust and confidence matter. Dr. Peter Hotez from Baylor University's College of Medicine, thanks for your perspective.
And after the break, Hollywood needs a blockbuster hit in China where life is slowly returning to normal. We'll look at one potential golden ticket for box office sales. Welcome back. With movie theaters still closed here in New York and elsewhere, Hollywood is hoping China can bring in the big bucks this fall. The release of the time travel blockbuster Tenet in China will be closely watched as a barometer of the industry's health. David Culver joins me live now from Beijing. Dave, great to see you. You know, usually blockbusters open in the U.S. This time, though, the blockbuster has opened in China. China got it first. And Allison, it seems like China is going to have the crowds at least to really meet the demand here as well. I mean, what you look at is where things have gone recently in China as far as returning to what is near normal. I mean, you have restaurants and bars and gyms that have been open for several weeks, if not months now, and really life is coming back to normal. What's last coming back online has been the movie theaters. And now we have learned that the vast majority, some 9,600 have come back online, 1,600 still not open, and they are doing it in the same time frame as this major Hollywood film is coming here to the People's Republic of China. Tickets in hand, moviegoers in Beijing prepare for their brief departure from reality. I really miss it. Before the pandemic, almost every time there was a good movie, I would go to the theater to watch it, Bao Ziya tells me. She is among the fans here to see Tenet, Christopher Nolan's highly anticipated sci-fi thriller, produced by Warner Brothers, which, like CNN, is owned by Warner Media. This is the first major Hollywood theater release in China since the COVID-19 outbreak that is expected to attract large audiences. China is allowing theaters like this one here in Beijing to reopen at 50% capacity. They've also got several seats, as you can see, blocked off, allowing for some social distancing. And once you're here for an actual film, You've got to wear a mask the whole time. If you say, can I at least take it off for some popcorn? It's not an option. Concessions are not being sold. I think it's okay. It is worth it, Bao says. China shuttered theaters countrywide in late January as the virus spread, only to begin to reopen them with limited capacity and many film reruns in July. So we're talking about roughly six months of closure. How devastating is that for the industry here? It is definitely very devastating. That means sort of lower investment for future projects. So that's actually a pretty worrying trend, not just for this year. It comes off what was a $9.2 billion year for China's box office in 2019, which was up more than 5% from the year before that, still less than North America's $11.4 billion, according to the Motion Picture Association, but rapidly narrowing the gap. Experts expected China to have overtaken the U.S. and Canada box office sales by this year. That was before the outbreak, of course. Now, with the vast majority of theaters here back open and customers feeling more comfortable to venture out, China could very well become the most profitable. Not everyone is a star, Fetty. Though there have been controversial cuts from Western films here in the past, including censoring LGBTQ content from the Oscar-winning movie Bohemian Rhapsody, Chinese film producer Ying Lo does not believe U.S. filmmakers will self-censor only to reach Chinese moviegoers. Rather, she thinks producers and studios aim to appeal to the global audience. I think they sort of understand what 
can or cannot be shown in Chinese theaters. Tenet made the cut. So too, Disney's live-action adaptation of Mulan, releasing in Chinese theaters September 11th. Moviegoers adjusting to this very different movie-watching experience post-outbreak, perhaps making the escape into another plot all the more alluring. And Allison, one thing that was pointed out to me by that film producer is it's not only the box office sales that they're concerned about here, it's also the production of new films. So for several months, it was halted here in China in particular, and obviously in the U.S. as well. Going forward, they worry that they then won't have the surplus in content to provide for consumers, and perhaps people they fear could fall out of comfort in going to the theaters altogether. So it's something they're really worried about, and they're focused on, and they're trying to figure out how they can keep that confidence in people coming to the theater and perhaps also provide the content. Right. I get it's a double-edged sword, right? It's the blockbusters that draw the crowds to the theater, and they have to feel comfortable once they're there. All right, right, David Culver from Beijing, thanks so much. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Thanks for watching. See you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.